on episode 67 of the High Performance Leadership Podcast, Showing Vulnerability with Sandy Coletta. Other leaders who I think often put up a wall between who they are and their teams, feeling like they've got to protect their identity, their self from what the organization sees. For me, it was exactly the opposite. We accomplished what we did, I think, because I let people know who I was. You're listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast, insights and information from world-class leadership experts. Thanks for joining us. I'm Randy Lane. On today's podcast, we're talking with Sandy Coletta. She's had a long career leading hospitals and healthcare systems. Now she's taking the lessons she's learned and putting them into a new book, The Owl Approach to Storytelling. It's about using the power of storytelling to connect with people you're trying to lead. We talk about how showing vulnerability through stories can build trust. And now here's our talk with Sandy. Welcome to the podcast, Sandy. Can we start with you kind of just telling me about your background a little bit? I am a, a trained as an accountant, actually. I was a CPA early in my career. And when I was in public accounting, I, I just felt like I wasn't making a difference. You know, I would be auditing manufacturers of extruded rubber thread, which, you know, as I've gotten older, I've realized the societal value of Spanx. But other than that, um, at the time, I didn't really connect with what was so important. So I was drawn more towards trying to find a spot where I could use my talents, which were more business oriented, to help others. And that's what brought me into healthcare. So I started working actually as an internal auditor at a local hospital, the Merriam Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island. And I spent 25 years with that hospital and the systems that it grew from. Held a number of positions. My last position there was as the chief operating officer for that hospital. And left there in 2008 to become the president of another hospital in our state, Kent Hospital, um, which I would actually define as the best job I ever had in my entire life leading a group of employees and medical staff with the sole intent and purpose of helping others who were in need was an amazing experience. We were part of a healthcare system. We had four hospitals, a home care agency. So eventually I moved up to be the executive vice president and chief operating officer of the system and held that job until February of this past year. We were going through a number of financial difficulties and as part of reducing our corporate expenses, my job was to kind of come up with what the plan would be and my plan included myself. Mm. Um, So since that time, I have been working on promoting the book that I wrote about my leadership style and then also enjoying a few months of going to the beach, which I never got to do in yeah. all those other 30 <laughs> yeah. years. There you go. Well, I can tell you the uh, the healthcare industry from someone on the outside who's not involved in it has you can tell it's going through a lot of changes, but from the inside, you know, you've been in the industry for many, many years. What what has changed so drastically that it's put the industry in general in financial struggles? Well, I, I think, you know, it's it's a very difficult situation in terms of it's very much like a pendulum swinging, right? So historically, healthcare, when I first entered it, we were paid based on our expenses. So whatever you, you spent, what you needed to spend to take care of the patients, and that's how you were paid. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there was opportunity for abuse in that system. You just spend whatever you needed. You could spend quite a bit if you wanted to. Um, So society recognized that and our political system recognized that and moved more to a model where you were paid based on um, a specific diagnosis. So if a patient came in with a heart attack, we would get paid a certain amount to care for a heart attack. 
And that lasted for a period of time. But I would say in the last probably 10 years or so, it's really focused more on, wait a minute, why aren't we trying to prevent the heart attack? Mm-hmm. Why are we focused our healthcare system on treating it rather than put the resources to preventing it? The challenge in that is it, it's obviously the right thing to do, right? Obviously, it would be better if we could prevent disease. But as I have often said, the last time I checked, we are all human. Yes. I never, I never get any objection to that. <laughs> and unfortunately, one of the realities of being human is that we die. And very few of us will be fortunate enough to just keel over and go. Right. The majority of us will get ill. And when you get ill, someone has to care for you. So in that transition of focusing on health, we still have a lot of sick people to care for. But our society, our healthcare system has put the pendulum all the way over towards, let's put all the money towards taking care to prevent disease. While those of us in the acute care and the hospital industry are sitting there with a building full of very sick individuals Mm. and the resources are being cut. So as the money moves from caring for the sick to caring for the well, those of us caring for the sick are struggling to try to figure out how to do that with fewer and fewer dollars every day. Sure. Obviously, to, to be in the medical profession, there, there's an, a lot of extremely smart people. I guess the question is, with all these bright people, what is the solution to the problem? And how can the brightest of the brightest figure out a way for us to find a balance between taking care of patients and the cost of taking care of patients without overtaxing and overburdening abuse of the system? Or, or is that the big question? Is that the big dilemma? Well, well, that is absolutely a big question. I think what's happened in our society in, in the United States is that we recognize that we're spending too much on healthcare. Plenty mm-hmm. of studies out there that show that when you compare to other countries around the world. And as a result, those of us in the provider community have said, well, all right, we've got to step up into it. So the insurers and the providers are trying to figure out ways to take risks, take responsibility and fix the problem. From my perspective, one of the pieces that really strikes me as a gap that we haven't recognized is when you look at that international data, you can't just look at the dollars that then the percentage of their income that they're spending on health provision. You have to also look at the amount that they're spending on social services. And when you look at that, what you see is those countries that are very low in health dollar spending are very high compared to the U.S. in social service spending. Hmm. So it is what we've done here is really focus on half of the equation and take responsibility. I think it's important for the health providers, but the reality is, you know, someone who says, you know, you got to kind of stick to your knitting, right? So the folks who are trying to solve this very large problem are excluding a significant component of the resources that really know how to do it. I run a hospital. I actually don't know and would not purport to say that I'm skilled at knowing how to get out in the community and go home to home and work in community. But that's not my space. That's not what we're good at. But we're not tapping the potential of bringing those small social service agencies together and looking at how other nations really enhance the social service support. Mm. Because, in fact, the dollars we're spending are oftentimes because of diet, because of um, bad housing, lack of housing, and in access to immunizations for children in school age. So I think that we want I really don't think we'll get through this quandary that we're in until we broaden the picture and bring in those resources that have the skills and the talent to really help on that end of the spectrum. A hospital acute care administrator, we don't really have the right, I don't think, to think that we know how to do everything. And we have to tap the talents of others that are currently excluded. 
Oh, yeah. Focus is critical. Absolutely critical. I agree with that. Also sounds like a very political discussion. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> <Indeed>. So, <laughs> But the reason why we asked you to be on the podcast today was because you've recently written a book. It ties into leadership, which is what this podcast is about. So what caused you to say, you know what, it's time for me to write a book, time for me to kind of share my philosophy on leadership and what I do. What, what inspired you to do that? When I was at Kent Hospital, that was my first presidency of an institution, and the institution had a newsletter that went out pretty much every day and telling all the employees, you know, we have this many people in different departments, here's what the situation is. And just by uh, default, really, I wrote a little note at the beginning of one of those newsletters my first month there. And it was a very personal note. I, um, I'm a big animal lover, and we had a baby bearded dragon at the time. Um, and, and he escaped. Now, a I've what? Never, a, bearded a bearded dragon? dragon. It's a lizard. <laughs> oh, I was like, thinking Game of Thrones right now. And... Uh, no, no, no. I'm not the mother of all dragons. Okay. Um, I'd never had one before, so I didn't actually know how to catch it. My husband and I tried a bit, and we couldn't figure it out, and he was roaming in the house somewhere. And it suddenly struck me that, oh, wait, I have 2,000 people who might know how to do this. So I wrote a little note about my lost dragon. And I was so amazed at the response. I think I was amazed, one, A, that that meant they read the letter, right? Um, And second, the expression of concern. So as I would walk the hallways, uh, people would be stopping and saying, did you find him yet? Um, I got tons of emails with suggestions about what to do. I had an employee drop off, well, he dropped off a cage that was big enough to catch a raccoon, but um, (laughs) it was a thought that counted. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it struck me that I had potentially tripped on an amazing way to open myself up and let my staff know who I was. And I've also always believed that you help and go out of your way to help those you care about and those you know. And that if you can have a relationship with your employees where they feel connected to you when it's time to really pull together and and implement a strategy or face a problem, you're all one group, you're one team working together. So I began to write little notes at the beginning, probably two to three times a week and lasted for my tenure there doing that. They would generally have some type of personal spin or something that was going on in my life, but they always, they often connected back to an initiative that we're undergoing or a message that I needed to get conveyed. But because they were personal, I started to save them. Um, I thought my children someday would like to read all these little stories about their mom's life and things that I might not have told them. And then in 2014, my mother passed away and had been caring for her for a very long time. And when you do that, you have a weekend that, you know, for the last 10 years has not been available to you. And I so much didn't know what to do with myself. So I had this file of wonderful little stories and I thought, gee, how did I do this? How did this help drive our organization? And that's what really got me to start writing the book. So it was really therapeutic for me to get through that period. But it also was a great way to show other leaders who I think often put up a wall between who they are and their teams, um, feeling like they've got to protect their identity, their self from what the organization sees. And for me, it was exactly the opposite. We accomplished what we did, I think, because I let the people know who I was. Well, I couldn't agree with you more wholeheartedly. We talk about this all the time on the podcast and that leadership is about relationships. And it's about the relationship with the people that work for you, that follow you, that respect you. Uh, Even the ones that don't respect you, you've got to figure out a way to build a relationship with them by being open and transparent and sharing of yourself. So I applaud your work. Now, tell us, uh, what was it like putting the book together? I mean, what uh, was it easy for you, painstaking? Was it exciting? For me, what the use of storytelling as a leadership tool 
was natural. Often when I was doing that, I would, there would be a problem. I would think for a moment and I would be like, oh, I remember the time this happened when I was little. It really <laughs> relates. And I would just bang up the little note or I would tell the story at an employee meeting. Um, what was challenging was breaking that down into a process. You know, when you do something just because it's who you are, to teach someone else how to do that, you really have to break it apart. So I think probably the trickiest part and what took the most for me was really sitting there and trying to understand if I didn't do this naturally, what would I have to do to be able to accomplish it and, and building the process that went along with it. Well, what kind of process? So what I, what I lay out for the in the book is, first of all, a why it's important, but sort of where to find your story. How do you what kind of stories work? How do you protect yourself from doing using the wrong stories? There are certain things you really shouldn't be sharing with everyone. How to think about when you're incorporating somebody else into that story. When I had the first draft of the book, I sent it off to my three kids. My oldest, God bless her, ran a Google word search through it um, and identified the fact that she was mentioned X times less than my son's Siberian Husky and wanted oh. to know what that was about. Oh my um, goodness. I would thought the other so, would be true. They'd be like, oh, mom, you mentioned, you talked about me so much. Don't talk about me. <laughs> and the fact that these were actual stories that I had shared at work. So she, she knew that they were there, but so you really have to think about that there. You know, there's a, there's a place, a time and a place for everything. And I think the other part, the, the other piece of the process is how to understand the moral. You don't want to be preachy, but I come from a philosophy and the book title of the owl approach is very much related to this, that it's always about understanding who, who is going to remember, who's going to be impacted by what you do, who's going to change how they behave because of what you do. You have to understand your who. And I know a lot of people, is, they think about other other aspects, you know, why am I doing what I'm doing, et cetera. But for me, it's the who. And that that goes all the way back to um, a time early in my career, I was doing a computer conversion when I was responsible for signing off on it as the auditor. And we had a trip planned to a um, big resort in Florida with my children. The implementation date was delayed and it overlapped with the vacation. Mm -hmm. So I was about to cancel that trip. A gentleman pulled me aside and said, before you do that, I'd like you to do me a favor. And I said, yeah, just imagine yourself 30 or 40 years from now, looking back on the decision you're going to make and think about who will remember your choice. It was the wisest thing anyone ever told me, and it has, it has guided me through my entire career. Hmm. Because the reality is, is that I will, would have been on my deathbed and my children would have reminded me of the year we canceled the trip to see Mickey. <laughs> yep. And the reality is, is that no one who was present at that conversion would have remembered whether I was there that day or not. So clearly we went on the trip. Obviously, sometimes the decision is who will remember how so it is the work situation. It is the business difference that will be remembered and you have to, you have to think about that but when I think about how to find the moral or what's the moral in these stories it is all about thinking about who will remember let me ask a question what is the difference in your opinion of a story and an analogy I have a gentleman that I work with who has an analogy for every sentence he makes he says and let me give you an analogy of that and he never gets right. to the point so right. how, how do you <laughs> You know, how do you look at the difference between a story to make an impact or an analogy to try and tie it back? My stories are real. You know, they're not they're not analogies. They're uh, generally what I would, would do is somewhat like I just did with you just now. Right. I told you about the computer conversion I went through and the challenge I was facing, the decision I had to make. That is all real. 
the moral about how to choose your decision based on who will remember comes out of that story. Mm-hmm. So it's not a it's not an analogy of uh, well, just think about how this other thing would be like that. It is it is very direct. It is very direct. Okay, I like the story that you told because I have a very similar story. I'm going to tell you a story now. Okay. Of just recently, there was a, a big solar eclipse, yes. and my mom was really excited about going, and she was like, "I really want to take David, which is my son." You know, she's like, I really want to experience it with David. I think he will appreciate it. And my wife was like, you know, school has just started. He's going to miss the first few days of school if you do this. And I I said to her, I think in 20 years, he's not going to remember the first couple days of fourth grade. He's going to remember the time he traveled maybe hundreds of miles and and saw this eclipse, you know, this once in a lifetime type of thing. And I think Mm -hmm. that's totally true that the story will come back and it'll be the thing that he remembers, not the process and the stuff like that. So, yeah, absolutely. I I refer to that. And I think everyone has this opportunity in their lives to make memories. Mm -hmm. And so your, your mom, made a memory that he will never lose. Mm -hmm. You don't have the chance to recreate those moments. And if you overtly and consciously create a memory for someone, that lasts so much longer than anything. So I'm really proud of you for sticking up for your son going, and I'm sure he appreciated it. And and I think uh, you're right. He will remember that forever. If he doesn't remember it, your mom will remember it. And (laughs) it's it's just as important to your mom as it is to David. That's right. Right. Because she will look back and say, do you remember the time? Mm -hmm. You know, and so. And that is as valuable as that is in our personal life. That is as valuable in our business life, mm-hmm. right? So I'm sure you have people talk about management by walking around, wandering around, whatever mm-hmm. you have it. I've, I've actually always hated that because quite honestly, I think when I walk on to a nursing unit, everybody freezes, starts to do their best, shoves <laughs> whatever it is they don't want me to see into a draw. You do it, but I've always preferred shadowing. I When I when I go out, I spend four to six hours with an employee and do their job alongside them. and. That is making a memory. That's building a relationship and it's making a memory because the fact that I've changed a dirty set of linen with the CNA who's I'm shadowing that day, that that's a big deal to them. She showed sure. me how to do it. I helped her get the sheets. I helped them put them on. She's not going to forget that day. Mm-hmm. So it is it is about creating those memories and it, it lasts and it changes that behavior going forward. We'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by 360 Solutions. Are you ready to work for yourself as a business consultant? 360 Solutions can give you everything you need to start, build, and run your own practice. In our 20 years in business, we've helped hundreds of people just like you live a fulfilling life developing organizations and leaders in your area. Visit 360 Solutions to learn more or come to one of our high-performance organization workshops. We're hosting them in Austin, Texas and Yosemite National Park this November. Find out more at 360hpworkshops.com. That's 360hpworkshops.com. Do you also find that people will respond better over time? If you just came by and you spent five minutes with them, they may not show their true self. But if you shadow them the whole day and you spend time with them, they'll let their guard down at some point and you get to see the real them and they get to see the real you, right? Absolutely. And quite honestly, you, you know, it sounds like I'm advocating for undercover boss and I'm not because I don't, I want them, I want them love to that know show. Who I am. <laughs> right. But I want them to know who I am, mm-hmm. you know, 
it's not just that they tell you, you see it. I remember that day I was shadowing with the CNA and I kept going to get the sheet and they were stained. And I, kept, I said, how many times do you get a stained sheet? And she's like, oh, it usually takes three or four to get a clean one. How would that have ever come up in a five minute walking around saying, how are things going today? It yeah, never so would you're, identifying, never you're identifying problems so that you can help them to make their job go better, to be more mm -hmm. efficient as an organization all the way Absolutely. around. Absolutely, and you're learning. Yeah. You know, it's, as I said, everyone has their talents. Mine happened to be in a business aspect and, and developed into a leadership aspect, but the talents of everyone else in the organization are as valuable and I want to see them. I want to know about them. I have a question for you around storytelling. Is there a balancing act in your opinion or is there a, a metric on stories told about yourself versus stories told about other people versus stories that are told that are hypothetical stories, you know, because sometimes, again, we'll go back to the guy that uses a lot of analogies. Every analogy or every story is about himself, his background, his past. And so it's like another eye roll every time he tells a story because it's all about him. And that reminds right. me of the time. Yes, that's what right, it is. Right, so right, he, right. he may say, oh, I listened to this podcast on storytelling. I'm going to tell even more stories about more myself stories. now. <laughs> and, and that's the last thing we want him to do. Right. Uh, is there um, to know, I don't think there's an actual metric. I can tell you it was very easy to tell based on feedback back mm -hmm. and response I, you know i think it, you, you bring up that example it's you, if you take a look through the book you'll see very few of the stories were actually about sandy and what sandy did or what sandy experienced they were about the world that sandy learned from okay so they might be about an experience quite honestly i i am a big proponent of the work of just culture and a way of managing outcomes and performance based on human factors and the human limitations. So the reason there's so many stories about the dog in there is because the dog behaved as a Siberian Husky behaves, which means that he killed many of my other smaller pets when he was a puppy. Sure. But what was he doing? He was following his nature. That the problem and the discipline wasn't for the dog for harming another animal. It was for me for not building a system that prevented that from happening. I know his nature. I know the risks. I need to design a system that prevents that from happening. So the kind of stories I would tell were not just about, oh, I went out this weekend and this is what I did, but about things that happened that were real, but that portrayed the message that we were trying to send. So I agree with you. I think I would go crazy if somebody was constantly telling me about how wonderful they were and how much they had accomplished, et cetera. And as time goes by, the story gets better and better. He yeah. conquered more <laughs> enemies and right. won more awards. And, you know, it. and the employees are to a point now where they, as soon as the story begins, they disconnect. Because Here it comes again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. right, right. It's gonna. It, it has to be, you know, they have to be engaging. They have to be of interest. And they, the other part we talk about in the book is a thread. There is a thread through the story so that whether they were about they were about the progress of the dog going forward or, you know, during those years, my mom was sick. So I had a lot of different experiences about how we interacted with the healthcare system. They linked as time went on and that that again created continuity that people began to attach to. And that, you know, I still will bump into employees who will ask questions about, you know, how's Luca doing? Or after my mom passed away, one of our employees would take care of the plants at her gravesite because she felt so connected to her by reading about her. Mm. Um, so it, it's not about building your own ego. It's about sharing how you learned mm -hmm. and what experiences in your life helped you learn a certain lesson. Again, people listen, is there any type of length to it that it should be? My uh, 
sister is someone who loves to tell stories and my dad will tell her you know, land the plane. And in our right. family, that's a, a, <laughs> yeah. a loving, a loving joke of, okay, this is a great story, but let's land this well, I, plane here. Yeah, actually, if you're, I think if you're writing, but when I wrote them, they're never more than probably three to four paragraphs, um, short paragraphs. This is not a novel. If you're speaking, um, generally, I think if I used a story when I was um, in an employee meeting or an employee forum, probably no more than two to three minutes. Again, it's only to set the stage and it's not to be the main content. Um, sure. Clearly, you don't want to put them to sleep. Yep. Yeah. If they really want to spend hours, they can buy the book and read all of them at once. Yep. <laughs> so if, if I'm a leader and I'm having trouble connecting with my people and I want to use storytelling as a way to reach them, what are some steps you would tell people to start using stories in their leadership process? One of the, I think one of the big pieces is to first get to a place that you understand that you actually do have stories. I think you have the extreme, right? So you have the gentleman that you gave the example who thinks that his life is a wonderful story. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the other end, you have people be like, there's nothing interesting about me. Like, mm. I've, you know, I'm just a normal person, I've not had any major things. What do I have to share? So there is, there is some reflection. And I take them through that in the book about how, um, if you've got, take your challenge, whatever it is you want to start using storytelling on, and then reflect upon that in your own personal experience and what what experience did you have that helped you deal with something like that? So one of the one of the first ones that I did was that was really moral driven was we had just had a union election for our nurses. It was three weeks after I got there. And the rest of the organization was really panicked. You know, it was a non-union facility. They thought the world was going to end. How were we going to deal with this problem? And everyone was really, really stressed. What I did is I said, well, what, what's a, a situation I've encountered where people have been like so stressed out over something that wasn't real, right? Because the threat to them wasn't real, but their anxiety. And I just, I just sort of sat in a quiet room and really thought about when have I ever experienced that before? And I came up with this one, it just popped in my mind. But when I was a young girl, my father was working as a supervisor for a company that went on strike. And one of my friends was a prankster. And during that period, he had stopped in a roadside construction site. And you might remember, they used to have those big round black balls with the flame coming out of them at mm-hmm. a construction site. Yeah. Well, he grabbed one of those and he put it on our front steps in the middle of the night because he was a prankster. My father got up to go to use the restroom in the middle of the night and saw, well, what do you think he saw in the middle of a strike? A bomb. He saw a bomb. Yep. He called the police. He got us all up. He thought the union had left a bomb on our doorstep. Mm-hmm. But there was no bomb. There was nothing but a small black object with a flickering flame from a construction site. Just as our organization didn't have a bomb at its doorstep. We had a problem. We would deal with our problem. But it wasn't a bomb. You really got to say, what's my problem? What's the problem I'm dealing with today? And have I ever, have I ever experienced anything like that, that feeling, that moment, and that's where your story can come from. Hmm. That's when you start to build it. You've spent many years in upper level management, and I'm sure you didn't start there. You worked your way up. Hmm. Have you had any examples of someone that comes to mind that has been a great leader or someone who influenced you considerably in your career moving up? positively or negatively? You know, that's actually the best job interview question. And I got that question when I was being interviewed to be the president of the hospital. So I'll give you the same answer I gave them. Okay. I have found in my life that I learned something from everyone that I work with. And there are about probably seven individuals, each of which have taught me something very valuable. My boss, when I was in high school, 
in a jewelry store taught me about how to do excellent hard work. He was a he was a hard worker and he really focused on getting the job done. He taught me how to do that, how to run a business. My boss when I was in public accounting talk, taught me how to speak. I used to be afraid of speaking to anyone and he's told me stop speaking and start talking to them, Sandy. Wait a minute. A CPA taught you how to speak? (laughs) Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Taught me how to be comfortable just talking to people. My boss at the Miriam Hospital was the best employee relations into personal individual I've ever dealt with and taught me how to treat people with respect and kindness and to value every, every individual. Now, there are others as well. And those I won't identify for you, but have taught me how not to do things, how not to treat people, individuals who held information close to the vest and didn't bring others into the conversation, taught me how damaging that can be to morale. So I think throughout one's career, you you have to learn from everyone whose path you cross. And and you hope that you do the same for others, that you are your interactions with the teams that you're guiding and those that you're mentoring, that they're picking up things from you. They're not going to want to be you, but they should learn some value add that they can take forward as they build their own style and their own career. Well, what's next for you? You said that you spent a long career in the medical field and hospitals and so now what? So the book is really interesting because as I mentioned to you, the book wasn't, it wasn't written as a career path. It was written as a, just something I wanted to get done in my life, a kind of a bucket list item, but I do very much enjoy teaching and helping people and speaking about leadership. And the more I can do that, the happier I will be. You know, when you think about what are the few things in your life that you've done, that's one that I really love doing. And quite honestly, I think if I were to get a full-time job again, it would have to be leading a hospital because that was the best, as I told you before, best job I ever had. They are not frequently available, but that would be my goal. If I were to go back to work again and not just focus on public speaking and education, then I think it would be a hospital job. So are you from Rhode Island? Is that home? I am born, raised, educated. So if you were to get offered a job to lead a hospital in Texas, for example, would you would you do it or is that going to be a tough one? I have one daughter in L.A. and one in Seattle. Oh, okay. So West Coast. So, and I actually, I, I, I need an ocean. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> I, yes, I think, um, well, um, to the extent right now, my only grand people are, um, have four legs instead of two. There are no two-legged grandchildren at Not the moment, yet. only four-legged <laughs> ones. So at this point, there's really no reason for me to leave Rhode Island. But if I were to take a job somewhere, it would have to be on the West Coast. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what's the name of your book? If, if anybody's listening and wants to get a copy of it, how can right. we find it? It's called The Owl Approach to Storytelling, Lead with Your Life. The Owl Approach? To Approach story- to Storytelling. Yes. Okay, wonderful. So do you have a website they can get it on? Yes, or Amazon or what, what? Amazon and there's a website, theowlapproach.com. Theowlapproach.com. And if anybody's listening, they want to reach out to you, how yep, would they? They can, they can get me right through that website. Okay, so go to that okay. website. Wonderful. Absolutely. I truly appreciate you carving out some time today to be on our podcast. This has been wonderful. I agreed with everything you said. So I, I always <laughs> like to interview people that <laughs> yeah. I agree with. <laughs> That's true. And uh, yeah, it always yeah, works out you. well for both of us. So yeah, again, thank you, thank you for being on the podcast and hopefully we can have you back again. It'll be a pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. Every little bit helps. Our website is hpleadershippodcast.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash hpleadershippodcast. Follow us on Twitter at hpl underscore podcast. 
and shoot us an email at podcast at 360solutions.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. 